Hey guys, Bear Grylls here, just to say, super excited for Charles Thorpe's podcast coming soon. You guys are going to love this. What a great guy he is and so many great stories. So enjoy these and remember, above all, never give up. Now, I personally believe that there's nothing better than a great adventure, whether it's to another country or into the backyard. It can have an amazing ability to change not just the way that we see the world, but also the way that we see ourselves. That is exactly what you're going to hear about from our incredible guests. On Great Adventures, I'm going to be hanging out with actors, athletes, thought leaders, and of course explorers, some old friends, and some new, to discuss how being adventurous benefited their lives. My name is Charles Thorpe. For over a decade, I've been chasing down epic stories professionally for magazines and television shows, and now I'm bringing those conversations here. Ronan Donovan has photographed animals all over the world on assignment for National Geographic, but his last trip was his most epic by far. For three months, he lived amongst a pack of wolves in the Arctic, documenting the behaviors and their hunts. I sat down with Ronan to discuss the experience in the making of the Nat Geo series, Kingdom of the White Wolf. I just got back from Mongolia a couple days ago, so I'm still in like jet lag, weird zone. <laughs> so nothing too crazy. That's the life of Ronan Donovan is. Just got back from Mongolia in that weird zone. Yes. <laughs> in the, like slightly, yeah, <laughs> sleep deprived haze. What inspired this trip into the Arctic to join a, a wolf pack and, and document them over the course of a few months? Yeah, I mean, it, um, it all came out of a year and a half work in Yellowstone, my first assignment for National Geographic was uh, 2014-15. There was a big initiative. National Graphic partnered with the National Park Service, celebration of the 100-year anniversary of the park system, Yellowstone being United States' first national park. Um, and so I came on just as the assistant to Nick Nichols, who is one of their long-time yeah. legendary wildlife natural history photographers. This was his last assignment, and I was incredibly fortunate to be able to oh, wow. assist him for... Most, I mean, the duration of the project, but after four months, there was an opportunity, kind of this window that opened up um, where they needed somebody to photograph wolves in the park. And Nick went to bat for me uh, with the magazine editors and said, hey, give Ron a chance. He's young and will, you know, physically crush himself to make sure that this gets done. Um, he's eager. He's got nothing to lose. Um, he's cheap. Stood up for me and gave the opportunity. And I did for a year, um, mostly in the winter in Yellowstone, trying to photograph wolves and it was incredibly challenging um you know landscape is challenging move around there your high elevation but also the wolves are shy i mean sure it's national park but you know it's open season hunting on the wolves around the park for the last five six years so what that means is every pack has lost an animal to hunters and it just takes one negative encounter typically with humans and very intelligent animals and just write you off as a as a species and that's kind of what the wolves in yellowstone have done so i could never really get um close um which is what you know you need proximity when you're trying to create visuals same with humans like if you can walk around your human subject 360 them any time of day photograph them while they sleep photograph them while they're playing with their family you tell an honest story about that person's life and the dream always with wildlife is to be able to have that same access it's very rare it almost never happens um but certainly with the wolves in yellowstone that was there was no chance to have that you know the images i made in yellowstone i'm very proud of but they the ones that were published you know there's there's this image of three black wolves on the yellowstone river the snow's falling it's kind of this almost a spooky like haunting image of these wolves um that is you know part of their life but the majority of their life is relaxing with their family playing sleeping napping in between travel and hunting bouts and i never got to see any of that i never saw puppies in yellowstone which is a big part of any animal's life is raising the next generation and i felt that the coverage of wolves wasn't um adequate in Yellowstone. It wasn't authentic to the wolves' lives. There was so much more that I wanted to show and that I was missing. I knew it was happening, but I just couldn't couldn't see it. And then I had an opportunity in 2016 to go to this island for a month to help a film crew. And that was in June 2016. And it was just, I mean, it was insane. Like the 
day one, basically, with this pack, landing a helicopter near this den that the biologists knew about, and these three yearling wolves just like ran up to the helicopter like while it's while it's touching down rotors still spinning you're looking back and there's like a wolf like sniffing the tail rotor and it, like i just i couldn't understand and still i'm like well, you couldn't teach very many domestic dogs to go run up to a helicopter to a helicopter right? yeah like people would be like i'm not going near that i've never <laughs> seen it but these wolves were you know curious or unafraid they're bold. They're at the top of the food chain there. They have nothing to be afraid of except for other wolves and the occasional polar bear. And to them, this was like some new stimulus. And it was the young ones that did it. You know, they ran out. Of course. Like, what is this? And you open the door and you're like chucking your bags out. And there's like wolves coming up and sniffing them. And I, it was just, my mind was exploding in the first hour of being on this, this island. And um, yeah, so Ellesmere is the furthest northern landmass in Canada. Um, it is... 500 miles south of the North Pole, as everything is south. Um, the place where I was is at 80 degrees north, so it's just just way the heck up there. Um, and it's a, an island that historically had humans living there, you know, pre-Inuit cultures, um, the Dorset and the Thule people, uh, but they disappeared um, across most of the Arctic. And the fascinating part is I think that you know, the wolves were able to persist and make a living whereas these human hunters couldn't. Um, and so now there are just three locations on the island where there are people. There's a weather station in the middle called Eureka, and that's where I flew into with my team, and that's where kind of we initially started based out of. And then there is a military base at the farthest northern point called Alert, and then there is a small um Inuit population on the southern end of the island, like 150 people, 160 people live in this town. This Ellesmere Island that you're talking about, can you explain the terrain and what it's like up there? Yeah, uh, 40% of the island is ice caps. So that's permanent glacial ice cap. Um, and that's all mountainous, basically. You know, 50% of the island is all mountains. So you have a, a limited, only half the island's kind of habitable by mammals. So the reason the wolves are there is because there's a food source there in the form of musk oxen, which are these giant shaggy goats. They're kind of like a weird, like star Wars type animal. Almost, They're beasts. They have, They're just absolute beasts. They have this like long hair. There's like, like two foot long hair, like grow this cape. That's kind of, you don't really actually ever get to see their legs, and how they <laughs> look and move. Cause they're just wearing this furry cape, which is great for staying warm in the winter. Um, and 900 pounds, right? Up yeah. To yeah pounds. Males will be 900 pounds. Uh, females about 500 pounds. Um, and th they're smaller than I thought. Like you see images of them. They just look massive because the tallest plants are maybe like a flower that'll get to maybe a foot above the, the ground. There's also caribou up there, a subspecies of southern caribou called the Piri caribou. And they are very small. Like the males are like 150 pounds, maybe. Never saw a single one. Um, and that's kind of a really interesting current um, climate change related story about what's happening to this tiny caribou species mm. that it's so far north and so remote that there isn't much being done were you hoping to see one when you went yeah, up there yeah, yeah. I mean, i've been up there i've been to this island twice and they're there somewhere um but i mean i flew thousands of miles on in a helicopter tons of miles on terrain found some antlers like some shed antlers from when the males would drop off but, mm. but no just no sign never saw one from a distance um talk to people that have seen them but that's so that's not really a main food source anymore right for the for the wolves but yeah so the, the island is these big valleys huge mountains um glacial ice caps so it's kind of these limited areas where the wolves can inhabit um they just follow the muskox and where they go um so it's a, it's a really beautiful place it's like going to a different planet in many ways it looks incredible in the imagery that yeah, you guys it's, captured it's just like it's hauntingly barren but then there's so much life kind of on the ground scale a limited amount of birds i mean limited amount of everything basically because it's just this short window like three months basically of what you'd quote call summer where the temperature gets maybe in the high 40s livable fahrenheit yeah livable the sun's up for 24 hours a day so that short growing season is like 
boom and bust for everything. All the mm. birds migrate essentially, except for the ravens stay there all year round, and maybe a couple of other species, snowy owls maybe, but everything else goes south. Um, there's Arctic foxes, which are bombing all around and small little things. There's a weasel <laughs> species up there. Um, but for the most part, it's a really narrow um, flora fauna package of, of animals and plants. And do the Arctic hair that you guys uh, show up up there. It was crazy watching yeah. those things move like a pack. Right. You never that, see hair. A yeah. pack of hairs, right? Like that was... <laughs> Rabbits like was, jumping yeah. around. And, and they're like so 10 fast. pounds plus. They're wow. huge. Wow. Yeah, they're bizarre and they... You startle them <laughs> and they'll get up on their hind legs and run on two legs and you're like what like what are you doing that's not what you guys are supposed to do and when they they're like trying to look to see if there's danger coming they stand up on their back legs and like oh my god around they're really bizarre but yeah they group up in the winter especially in these these big herds of like a hundred plus and in the fall when i was there we'd see them congregating and the wolves chased a couple of those herds and it's just like crazy your mind's not really sure what's going on there's these huge bowling, <laughs> white bowling balls sprinting across the landscape the sun cycle that was that just messes you up circadian rhythm is just like i mean you, you feel like a super human because you don't get tired like you do here like i would because the light cues aren't there. Light cues aren't the, there. No, the it's, sun it's isn't like, setting. The sun never yeah. sets for you know five months of the year basically. And so I was up there from June fifteenth to September fifteenth, and the first sunset was August thirtieth. And so before that, like, talk about from photography and film, like there's no golden hour. It's right. Just like harsh light <laughs> all day for months. You gotta make your own golden hour. You gotta at make that your point. Own golden hour. So finally, it started to get good towards the end. But um, but that that constant light source like you don't get tired you're photographing and filming you're working so like my sleep schedule is always nuts when i'm on assignment anyways even when it gets dark even on the equator i'll still work like 18 hour days Mm. routinely for weeks but up there i would do like 24 hour days which i don't doesn't make sense like there's no way you could get me to do that probably here where it's like no it's dark i'm I'm exhausted it's time to go to bed it's it's 5 a.m i've been up all night but there it was like, nope, it's still happening. It's still go time. I did like a 40-hour day once, which is just – it's not healthy. It wasn't yeah. It wasn't necessarily – it was out of necessity just the following the wolves and have, trying to keep up. And they were hunting and constantly moving. And then just that, that whole kind of process pulls you along. Yeah, so I want to get to that. I want to get into what you were feeling uh, emotionally when you first landed. Obviously, there was a project you had been prepping for a little bit now. So were you nervous? Were you not sure you're going to get what you needed? What was – how oh, were you yeah. feeling? when you first landed oh brutal it was um you know ball of fear of failure excitement this is happening i you know the team i was with none of them had ever seen a wolf so it was all you know the backstory was you know we had a biologist that we partnered with um who was who was you know super helpful in the beginning he was on board we had a huge chunk of money for him to pay for a phd student it was kind of like the perfect marriage of like national geographic print media and science you know national geographic partners and national geographic society everyone playing together and pooling this resource to be able to do a really robust and balanced project dream scenario yep and then a month before the field work we were meant to go he backed out uh because of contractual reasons really um and i don't necessarily need to get into that but it was like tv lawyers like wanted to treat him like talent and he was like i I can't agree to these terms and a month before we had to be in the field he's like i can't actually wouldn't even be able to do the work anymore because i don't have any resources uh and i can't secure helicopter time fuel food camp like all the equipment i would need i would have need to needed to have done that already so he just said i'm i'm really sorry but i i can't I can't do this. And we'd already invested a, a lot of money and time, you know, six months already of planning logistics and money to forwardly move all of our equipment and things and secure helicopter, all this stuff. And so there was this week of like, put the brakes on. We're all like, uh, you know, all the executives are asking me like, okay, like, can, can you do this without a biologist? And so there was this whole, week of me trying to figure out if this was a risk that I was willing to take. I've never done television. I wanted to do this project. I want to do a magazine story. That was the main motivation. So it was kind of this tough um, decision-making process that ultimately I decided 
just kind of feeling pressured to to do uh, the thing, um, said, okay, I, I hope I can do this. So there was a lot of nerves going into it, um, getting up there. So day one was kind of, you know, and then, and then it's just logistically, it's a massive feat. You have 10,000 pounds of equipment that you have to move up to this remote place. Um, so there's, you know, for days and days, you're just setting up your living quarters, you know, tent, food, su- sorting through supplies, checking to see what, maybe got broken on the trip up there, um, doing some scouting, but yeah, a lot of it was just a couple of days just getting settled and then waiting for the helicopter to get there to start doing surveys for dens. And that took a week. It got delayed. So it's just, it's, it's like this whole, it was, it was really, um, very stressful in the beginning. You know, a lot of people went out on, on kind of limbs in many ways, since I'd never done, um, this sort of a project before this scale of a project to just, you know, say they believed in me and I felt the pressure of, of them, um, as well as just the pressure that I always put on myself to, to function at a high level and to try to get the work done. And, um, so yeah, the, the first week or so was really hard. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I didn't realize that was a no, loaded question. I mean, it, these are, these are good realities of these projects. You yeah. Know, people see the final polished pieces, um, and everyone's often like, "Oh, you you have a dream job, right?" Like, well, I mean, actually, to a degree, it's but yeah, anxiety provoking for a lot of it when you're in the field and physically, you know, you know, whatever. People want to hear excuses, but yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, that's just a little behind the scenes. I wish I had a biology degree and yeah, uh, right, exactly. and, and known you back then because <laughs> I would have jumped right into know, that, man. Yeah, I know, totally. Jeez, <laughs> kicking himself. I hope. What does the camp look like? You know, for people out there. I mean, sure. how many tents? You know, what's the setup? What's the sort of infrastructure of that? Yeah, I mean, we. You know, once once you throw like. It's kind of like car camping on steroids when you throw a helicopter into the mix. <laughs> um, you know, we had we had five thousand pounds of fuel, which Whoa. was overkill. But you don't want to have too you little. Don't want to have though. too little. Yeah. When so the four wheelers, ATVs, is our main mobile machine to be able to keep up with the wolves while they travel, to carry enough food and water and fuel, and then to carry 150, 200 pounds of equipment. Right. So I, I would love to have figured out a different machine that was more i don't know efficient or more comfortable like you couldn't have a, a vehicle you sat down in because you would literally destroy your spine mm. in the first week right the terrain it's like this hummock like these these landscapes where it's like think of like five gallon bucket flipped upside down and then like a field of twenty thousand of those for miles <laughs> right so you're just like car accident after car accident yeah. on top of this machine atv um so that was really hard. So anyway, so once you throw in all this weight, then it's, you have a thousand pounds of food. So then you're like, okay, well, you need to be comfortable. It's going to be, uh, hard to live out there for three months. So we, we had a, a logistics company called North winds out of, um, Yellowknife and, and Baffin islands. This, this woman, Sarah McNair Landry, who's a polar explorer. And so she's like, okay, we got like, here's the deal. Like, here's what you, here's what you do to be comfortable. We had these, uh, base camp tents. Okay. So mountain hardware, they're called storm fronts. They're a dome style base camp tent. You'd see in like the Everest base camp or the high mountain base camps. And like, I can stand up in the middle. I'm like six, three, I can stand up in the middle so that we had like, we had one of those for kitchen tent. So we, what we do is we set up a base camp. That was the idea. And then the ATVs were used as mobile camps. So you'd have just like a little spike tent that would fit in a little tiny stuff sack basically for just you your sleeping pad you'd go out for four or five days until you almost run out of fuel and then you got to come back to base camp and fill up uh sleep uh get more food download your cards charge your batteries and then go out for another like three or four days so that was kind of the idea but base camp was um so there were three of us total for the whole time myself a dedicated uh dp and then we had a camp manager who was also a field producer and so we each had our own tents, like sleeping tents, personal tents. They were um, Hillebergs, I think is what they're called. Um, they're just fantastic, like these tube tents, basically, and they can withstand any any wind. They're like polar expedition tents. Um, and then we had the kind of like kitchen base camp tent as well for, for like food. And we had, I mean, we had tables, 
right? So like proper once, proper once, dining. Yeah, once you have all this stuff, you're like, like why not have a table? table? Like it doesn't actually matter. We don't have to be sitting. You know, we don't have and to be. You have you know, we had hundreds of terabytes worth of hard drives. So you can't. Of course. Like like logistically, it makes zero sense to spend all this money to go to this place and then have your hard drives in the dirt. Yeah, and um, be sitting in the dirt when you're eating. So for hours while you're downloading footage and charts. So you know you. It sounds ridiculous, and it is ridiculous when you look at it. <laughs> You're like, this is like a space station. Again, um, I wish but, I had visited because yeah. it sounds like the right way but, to do it. But yeah, it is. It was, and it was a, a you know, it's it, it was it's crazy to think about just how much stuff you bring. I mean, I one of the things that's always so hilarious and humbling was the fact that like I needed all this stuff to just like do what the wolves do every day, right? All this like technically yeah. clothing and this like you know internal combustion machine that's fueled <laughs> off of ancient ancient solar energy, yeah, and gas, and then the wolves are just like, yeah, we got the same pair of shoes. We're called feet. Uh, we got we have the same fur every day, yeah, and we can outpace and do it more efficiently and comfortably than you can. And we're out, we're also living out here. And <laughs> You're you, like, let me put my crushed up uh, yeah, dinosaur liquid into a yeah. helicopter, and then yeah, uh, I'll, I'll be right after you guys. My freeze dry thing. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah. I need a comfortable place to lie down. <laughs> Um, as a writer and a, a fan of Jack London and just a lover of wolves, we have the Wolf Conservation Center up here in New York, and I've been able to visit a few times and have a few interactions. They're just such majestic, beautiful creatures. Tell me a little bit about that part of the journey where you're having that in interaction. You're trying to earn their trust. Obviously, you're trying to get those those shots. And I think I saw you were you're joining them on their on their walks, on their walkabouts. You know, for like 30, 40 miles. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, the wolves on this island just haven't had negative encounters with humans. So like I had experienced a couple of years prior to this actual, this assignment, you know, they run up to the helicopter. So they're curious about people and new stimulus and landscape. So the first time that I met this pack, um, the polygon pack, I named them just because it's this polygon pond landscape, which is from permafrost freezing and thawing the soil over thousands of years and creating these really cool pond systems. And that was right near their den. You know, that first pack, it was, there was a yearling female, Slenderfoot, I ended up being, uh, who I had followed on this course. She was by herself, but consistently going in one direction um, on the landscape, which generally to me meant that she was like going home, like heading for the barn and ended up, um, I followed that track and saw some ravens, which are pretty scarce up there. You didn't see them very often. Um, and ravens typically in a, in a flock means that there's some meat and a carcass. That's how you find carcasses on the Serengeti is from looking for scavenger birds, birds yeah. in Yellowstone as well. Um, but Ellesmere, there's just very few ravens. You didn't see them very often. And so I started riding towards that. And then it was a really windy day. Um, and down this little kind of swell in the landscape, there were these six white dots and those ended up being six adult wolves. And then there was a little pup pile of four pups. Oh, man. And I didn't, you know, I was kind of standoffish for an hour or so, just kind of watching and didn't want to approach, didn't want to scare them, didn't know if they were going to be okay. Like I had it in my head and I obviously pitched this project thinking like, okay, these wolves are not typically scared of humans. Um, and eventually they saw me or smelled me and three of them. Um, got up, ended up being uh, two of these uh, two-year-old females, and then a yearling male came over, and they just like beelined it towards me. Um, but reading their body language, they were relaxed. They were kind of just like not tails weren't up. Um, they were doing kind of the slow, blinky, relaxed eyes, which is like obviously mm. a very that's um, what you want to see calm behavior. You know, staring intently, wide-eyed for a predator means that they are thinking something very intense. You know, <laughs> you guys aren't probably going to agree on, right. on whatever's going to happen next, yeah. right? Or they're or they're like very interested in what could be happening with this thing. Um, and so all those interactions were just like they were just curious, and so they came up walking around me, kind of checking stuff out. One of the females darted in and grabbed my $10,000 camera that I had at my at my feet. I mean, it was right there. I didn't think that she'd be that bold, and she was. And then it was this ridiculous game of, like, wild wolf keep away ensued um, where I was like, I don't – I need that. Uh, I don't have replacements. It's actually not even mine. It belongs to National Geographic. 
I don't want you to have a fucking trash toy <laughs> that's like out on this landscape that has a battery in it. Like all these things going through my mind. And she was totally doing what we've all who've played with dogs know that game where they right. grab your hat and they're like looking behind. That's yours. Now watching. it's mine. Here yeah. we go. Chase. And like run a little ways and then like I would run after her and she would stop and you know let me get close and then sprint off and then I had to do like I literally had to do and I've done this with dogs all the time I literally had to do the like fake out where I like turned around and like <laughs> like I was walking away and then she turned like fully around and then I turned and sprinted as fast as I could at her and kind of startled her and she dropped the camera uh, and then you know didn't have any marks on her anything like that she oh, there you go. hard um, she knew it was important she was like this is an expensive yeah, camera and, 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 I mean I watched them do it with each other like of course steal a bone or a piece of hide and they just right. play that game but so it wasn't that hard necessarily to earn their trust mm. um you know those were the most uh like interested or, or in terms of like curious the other three members of the adults um one was a matriarch one was the the patriarch and then there was another um yearling female that one slenderfoot who they were they were just kind of standoffish and then the four pups which I found really interesting. Um, they were terrified in the beginning. Mm. Like they got up, walked like maybe a hundred feet away, started kind of like howling together nervously, not reading any of those cues from the adults, right. which is interesting. Like yeah. Generally social mammals, the young ones always read adult body language or behavior for gauging. If some interaction is going to be the leader. Yeah. Yeah. is going to be friendly or foe. And the adults were like passed out sleeping. And like there was not, like there was not any problem. Hmm. Um, but the pups were just they didn't they'd never seen a person before. Yeah. Um, and that was interesting to me thinking about just like the domestication of wolves in that process and how you know it took it took a while. Um, but within two or three weeks, the pups were fine and they would go to sleep in a pile twenty feet away and be totally fine near me. Um, so that was interesting to see them go through that progression of like okay like i'm gonna be a little nervous and wary of you in the beginning but the adults seem fine with you and you haven't done anything yeah negative so yeah so that's you know that relationship like the human wolf relationship it just it's fascinating to think of you know it's, it's the first animal that humans domesticated in eurasia some you know 30 40,000 years ago and you could see immediately what a group of hunting humans would see this incredibly skilled hunter out in the landscape in wolves hunting the exact same food they bump into each other all the time hunting the exact same prey same prey and then realizing that you know they find a pup abandoned or go seek it out or some wolves that are curious and fearless of humans come by and you just start chucking some meat scraps at them like it would happen so quickly that they would humans would realize like this is an incredible animal i mean even just for the soul purpose of having a guard animal mm. that would bark when anything came near your camp yeah be invaluable if you could just sleep at night that would be fantastic and then realizing like wow i could actually hunt with this thing i love seeing those partnerships across species mm. sometimes in africa as you yeah. know with the giraffes sort of being the lookout for mm. the rest of the prey when the totally. big cats are after them yeah. what was the routine like with these wolves i mean was it how early were you waking up how early were you taking the atv out and yeah. then how long were you for these days with the wolves yeah, it was um, – schedule was just all over the place. Yeah. Um, so Especially because you don't have that, that light cue that yeah, we're talking you about. You're sun, just sort of – yeah. Sunset. Um, so essentially how it went down was, you know, there even when the sun was up the whole time, it would dip a few degrees below the horizon when it was in the north, which would be night, quote, night, still daylight. But uh, the temperature would drop maybe 10 to 15 degrees. And so the wolves typically seem to keep to the same circadian rhythm that they would on those shoulder seasons where there was sunrise and sunset. And that was just temperature controlled. So like they, summer's their most kind of physically stressed time. Wolves actually get stronger in winter, which you think like, oh, what are you talking? it's dark and it's negative 30, 40, 50 degrees. They must get weaker. But um, in general, they, you know, if they're a healthy family, they get stronger because their prey is weaker. Um, mm -hmm. So they would be more active during that kind of dip in the, the northern horizon when the temperature get a little bit lower. So that kind of dictated the movement a little bit. Um, but, you know, so let's say I just left base camp. I had refueled food water not wide pump um you know water pumps we could find creeks and stuff but mm -hmm. uh had enough fuel had enough food 
And then it would take me sometimes 12 to like 20 hours to find the wolves. Um, you know, I, after a couple of weeks figuring out their general home range and their general rendezvous sites and then the terrain, the valleys. So I would search for them. We didn't have any radio collars or anything like that. Um, we didn't have any tracking devices in the pack. So it was all just kind of like the old way of like go to a high point and glass with your binoculars. Mm. Um, and so typically I could find them within, within 12 hours, usually get to a high point. It would take three or four hours to ride the ATV to get to that point where they were 20 miles north, which kind of gives you an idea of how awful the terrain is. If it takes you three hours, yeah. four hours, to 20 miles. That's crazy. Um, and just look, you know, luckily it's a brown landscape and they're white dots, big white dots, the only ones like them. And so you could find them with binoculars from four or five miles away, sometimes more. Look for musk oxen that would be grouped up. I found them a couple times that way where they had just messed with a herd of musk oxen and the musk oxen all grouped together to defend themselves. Mm. And then I'd find the wolves and, you know, there was they were agreeable. There was no problem in following them. So once you found them, it was just on you to keep up, basically. Right. Um, and we definitely lost them a couple times and that was always really hard when they're hunting, you know, that what makes animals typically is, you know, environmental factors that drive them, which oftentimes is how they find food and what they evolved to hunt as predators. And for the wolves, they are born with this evolutionary package of, you know, physical attributes, mental attributes, cooperative attributes that they can learn to hunt anything from bison, which is our biggest land mammal in North America, to right. they can live off of lemmings and mice and mm -hmm. rabbits and everything in between deer, elk, um, and, and caribou and musk oxen. And so they figure out how to hunt these animals. And so to film and to document, photograph them hunting is, I mean, that's kind of what makes wolves. And Absolutely. What makes musk oxen. So that was, to me, and that is one of the most kind of successful sequences and wildlife films are though I mean, there's whole series that are called the hunt of course it's like hours of animals hunting it's it's um something that humans are fascinated with as hunters as we are and so that was the, always the biggest drive was trying to figure out how to keep up with the wolves when they were hunting and so right. keep with them and then also you're trying to film and photograph a sequence of that so you're you know, you're racing along you're getting your ass beat on these ATVs and then you got a you have your kit rigged where I had you know pelican cases on mounted on the ATV so you you know slam on the brakes jump off while the thing's still rolling open up your pelican case pull out your camera drop your tripod try to do all this within a minute to film whatever you wanted in front of you whether they were in the midst of a hunt which was always really hard or if they were traveling and you need to build up that sequence to the same light in the animals and traveling um, so all that was just kind of a flail and trying to keep up with them and then you got to drink a water and eat something in between and they would they could go for 10 15 hours straight doing that normally they're going like five to seven miles per hour right with the pups with them they'd go like kind of at pup speed which is a little bit slower <laughs> um, but they'd stop every now and then and they'd check out they had kind of these like routes that they would do and they had these these it was interesting to see that they would visit the really old carcass sites um so the male musk oxen are huge, 900 pounds, 800, 800 pounds, 800 pounds. Um, and they, their skulls are so big that the, um, the wolves couldn't carry them off. Wow. And so what that means is like they thin the landscape, they become kind of like these signposts because <laughs> the wolves visit carcasses for months and months afterwards. They chew on bones. Right. Wolves can literally like chew up bone and digest the fats and lipids that exist in bone. They can do that in their gut. They just have to chew it and break it up. So they will seek out these old carcasses. But these big male musk oxen skulls were cool because they'd kind of become like these signposts where wolves would come by and foxes and they'd urinate to market their territory. But then that fertilizes the landscape, so they become these kind of little like garden patches. Oh wow! Where it's a, you know it's a, kind of a barren desert up there in terms of nutrients in the soil, and so you get a little bit of feces, a little bit of urine, and they'd be <laughs> kind of these cool little signposts. So the wolves would kind of check those out, so you could figure out their routes. Um, but when they're hunting, they're just they're that is their main goal, and they're going to do it for you know I followed them once for forty hours straight over sixty five miles, and that was going from sea level up to. 2,500 feet elevation and then back down this crazy avalanche chute that was all ice that I swore they were all dead when they went down it because <laughs> they disappeared. I couldn't follow them because I tried and almost of course. went out. I mean, it was just, 
it was like a 70 degree pitch like i don't i still understand how they made it amazing creatures took me an hour and a half to get around that section that terrain obstacle and find them again and they were just all curled up sleeping they were totally fine I'd like to welcome a new partner to this endeavor, Haidus Tequila. Haidus means to pause or break a sequence, which I believe is a great message. I'd always been a bourbon or whiskey guy until recently I started dabbling with tequila, especially in the summer. I met the founder of Haidus, who is a fascinating guy and has done his due diligence in Mexico. Check them out on Instagram at Haidus Tequila. Obviously, you're not spending every second with a pack. You're not sleeping with them, that sort of thing. But when you're on the ATV and you're you're chasing after them to get that shot while they're on a hunt, did yeah. you feel like a part of that pack or were you just sort of, did you feel like the spectator who's just capturing the moment? Yeah, I mean, definitely always a spectator. Like I was, you know, I was never involved in their like direct day-to-day life, never like physically interacted with them at all, aside from them, you know, grabbing a thing every now and then. Um, but you definitely get, you know, I got totally emotionally attached to them as animals mainly just because it's i mean they live these incredibly in many ways envious lives um especially for modern humans or at least this is how i feel about it just that you know the human happy place is like purpose-driven community challenges that we overcome together right so like humans if we have a goal in mind and we can do that, overcome that with family or friends who, with people you've known for your entire life, like that's a, one of the best feelings in my life when I'm able to do that. I feel um, like that's why escape rooms are so popular. <laughs> really. I think it's just finally yeah. people are just finding that, trying to recreate that, yeah. that instinctual natural I mean, cycle. Right, challenge, I mean, that, athletics are that same principle where you're working together towards a common goal. You're in the moment. Like these are things that we seek out now. And, and you're right. I think that these modern examples of creating that, that escape room is completely non-essential in the world. Right. But it's just the feeling that you get when you're doing that is something that we seek out. And I watch these wolves and they're doing that every day, all day. They're surrounded by their family, their loved ones. And most of the time it's lovely and Mm. they can relax and play. And then they have to go through essentially a battle uh once every you know three or four days when they have to go fight an animal that weighs like five to ten times their size with their face i mean that like that's incredible and they got to work together and they have to achieve a goal and then the reward is like a hot meal like warm blood if you were an animal that most of the time you got to eat like semi-rancid you know cold meat and bones bones or true yeah. bones and, but yeah and then you get this this baby muskox in and like that's that's a motivation alone let alone the hunger but you know it's spending all the time with the animals um they all have personalities um all animals do essentially especially social mammals there's certain mm-hmm. personalities that are more successful in social groups just like with humans that's why we have introverts extroverts um all those things make they have certain social advantages so there's the more dominant ones there's the passive one the female that was the big sister that always cared for the pups she had one eye because she got smashed by a musk oxen at some point i imagine and was still an incredible huntress and incredibly sweet on the pups she would kill an arctic hare and bring it to the pups she would find a play toy bring it to the pups and um, you know pups would get kind of tired and and behind she was always the one doubling back to check Mm. on them um so you just yeah you definitely you get totally invested in their life and and you you know there's only two other humans there so your like soap opera interesting entertainment is in these wild animals which every day is this kind of this epic saga that we would write books about for centuries about the lives of the wolves that they live every single day and this is just the smallest little window into the actual lives of wild wolves just think of every pack that exists you know thousands of families of wolves that exist in the wild that we don't know anything about even just after I watched the program, I'm invested in these animals. I can only imagine how it felt when you'd see one of them get get struck by mux oxen yeah. or, or or not come back after. You know, we're not going to say what, what actually happens in the program because we yeah. want people to see it. But how were you, you know, how did it actually feel to be in those moments? Were you worried for them? 100%. I mean, it's a, uh, you know, you bond with any 
animal that you share experiences with. And I don't mm. necessarily, I, I wouldn't say that I'm sharing the experiences with them. You know, I'm watching them hunt. They're, yeah. That's how I'm sharing it, just kind of as a, as a spectator. But it, it could be like, um, you know, sporting events where you become invested in your favorite player, even though you've never met them, but you've watched them and watched them go through all these events and get injured and come back. But you're you're really curious about their life and you Google their name and figure out right. who their friends are and what their house is. You know, you get all that stuff. But that's just from a just from a vicarious point of watching. And it was the same in many ways for the Wolves, where you're watching their day to day lives. Them interacting with their family, going out and trying to trying to overcome these these challenges, um, and yeah, I mean it's it's there was one that long session where where it was forty hours and they traveled sixty five miles. They hadn't eaten in like five days. They had like bones and some old scraps of, of meat, and it was very noticeably that they were kind of desperate trying to find food. They would stop at some of these old carcasses and like like fight over hide barely any nutritional value the mm. pups would growl each other and, and normally everyone was pretty cordial and when there's enough food when they're well fed there's no reason to have competition and that was stressful for me because they were desperately trying to hunt um one of the wolves did get steamrolled by a big male musk oxen which was hard to see and then she got up and she was seemingly fine and carried on for another 30 miles they killed a couple arctic hares in that long trip but the adults were barely sharing any of it with the pups, which was really mm. rare. But, you know, realizing well, if for me, I realized if the adults aren't well fed, then there's no chance for the pups yeah, for to the get next. food. Exactly. So yeah. that was really kind of shocking to see. And, you know, you're, you're rooting for them and trying to hope that they're going to hmm. make it through. But it's part of part of the wild. I mean, yeah, it's hard to see them be kind of like you see how fragile life is in the wild. You know, end of summer is kind of the hardest time for wolves because their prey is at its strongest, the muskox. And they've been grazing all summer. And wolves, kind of end of summer, have kind of lowest percentage of body fat and trying to build up before winter, which is hard. Um, so it was just that was that was that was a hard day in all around physically and, and also just kind of emotionally watching wolves struggle a lot. And how did it feel after being with them for, you know, three months? How did it feel to say goodbye to the pack? Oh, it was brutal. I didn't want to go. Um, <laughs> you know, for many reasons, it was being in the middle of nowhere in this wilderness area, having uh, a common goal with these two other guys to create this this body of work. Um, and then the light at the end of the trip was getting better and better. First sunset again was like August 30th. And oh, my God, like it was just <laughs> like middle of September. It's getting cold. Everything's freezing. It's below zero. You know, even just the breath that is coming out of the wolves when they're running and hunting was just gorgeous. And the light mm. would be like golden for hours and hours because the sun's just dipping below the horizon for a couple hours and coming back. Um, and then just thinking of what's going to happen, you know, 50% survival rate for the pups. So, you know, two of the pups might not make it. And you can like literally see the runt. Mm. This little one who was like, you're like, you know, yeah. I, you know, you want to stick around and, and tell those real stories. You know, I wish I could be there for winter. That's something right. I really want to go back and do. That's kind of the, the next phase for me that is that story, the untold story of what happens to these wolves in winter. They are white wolves that evolve yeah. on a predominantly white landscape. Beautiful. They're stronger in winter. It'd be yeah. gorgeous. Kidding me? Yeah. You were taking so many photos, but, you know, did you come away with a favorite? Did you come out with a moment that you thought was like, this is what I'm here for? The social images are the ones that to me are the most exciting there's a couple series that i have where they're doing like a pack rally <laughs> where it's all six adults and all four pups and they're just like weaving in and out of each other and was that before they were going on the hunt or yeah, when they yeah. wake up i love that i'm yes. like i wish i could do that was like i know a couple of my friends just go around totally. poke each other shove yeah, each other yeah. a little bit yeah do a fist bump get the day bumps. started yeah, yeah. Do a couple big man hugs and then get out there and, and go <laughs> take you, on the get day get amped up get amped yeah, up I mean, physical contact feels good for all yeah. social mammals and wolves they don't hold back. You know, we, we do our whatever cultural, like, standoffish, like, <laughs> yeah. handshake. Nice to yeah. meet you. And, Get some Purell and yeah, wipe yeah, that down. Exactly, and... <laughs> right. Wolves are like, get in here. Let's, just, yeah. let's snuggle this out. We're family. We're family. Um, and I, I love those images, this, the, the few images that I have where, you know, the wolves are kind of together snuggling, um, yeah. just showing how much they actually love and care about each other. One of the other images is when the wolves are 
hunting and they take down this this calf musk oxen and it's kind of this it's just a very intense image tense moment where the wolves are surrounding this this calf that's about twice the size of it um and crazy. they're just kind of in this looking at it right now it's yeah, crazy yeah they're just in this really intense moment and you're feeling for that calf because the world was amazing for it until you know pick up the issue of nat geo guys ago. you can take a look and do yeah. these photos are amazing yeah nice. yeah it's a cool cool place to be able to showcase their lives and uh Getting into that element that we were talking about before, the sharing of these stories and how important it is uh, at this time, especially I feel like with some of the legislation that's come out and some of the mm -hmm. talk that's going on with wolves. How do you feel about being able to release this out to the world at this time when it seems like, you know, there's a lot of unfortunate activities going on with wolves and wolves populations in, in the United yeah. States and all over? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an ongoing struggle. Um, modern humans especially we just have more capacity to destroy um than we ever have in the past in terms of just having poisons and metal traps and guns um you know humans and wolves have had a love-hate relationship for thousands of years but now more than ever um you know we we're, people are starting to understand that coming out of Yellowstone, the research has been there for you know 25 years that wolves are really important to the ecosystem there to bring it back to balance and, and overall health to all the animals. Uh, but yeah, we have legislation now to you know delist wolves across their entire range in lower 48, which would really hinder the reintroduction of wolves to other states um, where they currently are, you know, all through the Rockies, coast to coast, north, south, border to border, there were wolves in every single state yeah. in the United States, um, down into Mexico. And they exist now in these tiny little pockets, There's maybe only 10,000 wolves in the lower 48, when there were probably well over a million, two million wolves pre-colonial you know, pre times. And that, to me, is just staggering to think of. You know, we... We um, think that we are the best managers of wilderness and wild places, and it's just one of the most unfortunate arrogances that we have as modern humans that we know how to better manage forests and better manage wildlife. Than we prove time and time that we aren't. We've proven that it's not <laughs> the case. Forest fires are a perfect example of that. We suppressed them for the last 100 years, and we're dealing with the repercussions of that now all through the West. And wolves are the same. You know, we have huge elk populations in Colorado. The biggest elk herd in lower 48 is in Colorado. There's no wolves in Colorado. No management. And no management. No natural management. Natural management. You know, human-led management, which is kind of the opposite of natural selection <laughs> when you're, you know, I, I fully support hunting, um, fully support subsistence hunting. But, yeah, hunting in the middle of the peak rut where you're taking out the male elk that are the strongest fittest animals in the herd you know there's plenty of studies that have come out of certain trophy animals certain species like some of the um bighorn sheep stone sheep in british columbia where their curl sizes have been getting smaller and smaller over the decades because of trophy hunting so so yeah the idea that humans are better managers you know it's um it's kind of you know, East Coast white-tailed deer are out of control um, in terms of just their numbers. You know, there's 100-plus deaths a year from humans colliding with white-tailed deer and other prey species that their numbers would be greatly reduced and controlled by wolves. You know, it's just that general fear that wolves are going to kill people that keeps wolves from being brought back or allowed to expand further. And while that will happen maybe now and then, um, you know, in the last hundred years, there's only been roughly four deaths, maybe. Some of those are, de are debatable from wolves. I'm hopeful um, that this story will contribute to the existing movement that has been going on for decades. That's kind of this re-education of modern humans and their relationship with wolves. Um, and, and hopefully it's a, a window into, you know, these animals' lives that people maybe haven't seen or, or haven't seen for a while, you know, I'm, I'm not going to pretend like these images are completely unique and that there's never been any photographs from Ellesmere Island. There was a story for National Graphic cover story in the 80s. Um, this is, you know, it's just kind of a, a reboot and a reminder to people that these animals exist out there and they have a really important place in the landscape. And it's really on us um, to just be a little bit more mature as a species, as a modern species, to figure out a way to, to coexist with them as well as 
many other species. It's an important reminder, and I think, especially being on the brink of, of losing some wolf subspecies as well, you know, it's, we're dangerously close. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you lose a genetic line of, you know, red wolf or Mexican gray wolf, for example, they're gone forever. And subspecies matter because that's how you get speciation. That's the start of it. And we have, you know, we have just halted evolution across the world um, in the last few hundred years since industrialization. And that's a very terrifying thought. We've halted it in ourselves yeah. <laughs> as well as in wild animals. Um, and I think that a lot of this is just there's there's just honest conversations that aren't necessarily being had on an open scale. People maybe don't know about them or don't know how to talk about them or are uncomfortable talking about the, that idea of, you know, halting a process that's existed since the beginning of time. Um, some people don't believe in time. Um, <laughs> so there's that issue. But, but yeah, just... Uh, one problem at one, a time, Ronan. <laughs> one problem at a time. Let's... The things that are in my head. <laughs> um, but no, I think... I think this this story is going to do a lot for for bringing that conversation back up, and I think it's going to do a lot of good. I hope so. We end this conversation with two questions. The first one is: If I handed you a plane ticket right now to anywhere, and you could go anywhere and do anything, what would you do? Oh, I go back to Mongolia. There we go. <laughs> what would you do in Mongolia? Um, I would probably go west into the Altai Mountains and go find a pack of Mongolian wolves to follow. <laughs> that sounds like fun. I'm in for that trip. I'm in for that trip. If you yeah. need a biologist, I'll get right, studying. Right. Yes. I'll do night school, whatever a, you need. Get, yeah, quick online degree. I'm there sure. we go. <laughs> and then lastly, when I say your favorite sunset, the best sunset that you've ever seen, what comes to your mind? Oh, gosh. I mean, it's a tough question. Yeah. I know. Well, with the wolves, it was... Um, it's the last photo in the magazine story. It is of the family, and this was um, they had they had come across a huge bull musk oxen, and it was in the dark in the twilight. Um, I was following them, yeah, and there it is. And uh, they came across this bull, and it was I think it died in the rut, fighting, um, competing with the other males, and so it was a huge food source, and they just. They were so excited, the wolves, and they just fed on it for an hour, played around. There was this little pond nearby um, where it was frozen over, and they were kind of skipping back and forth. And it was just it was just this really happy, sweet time for them. And the sun was was just below the horizon, but it was twilight for hours, and kind of this pinkish, purplish, blue light coming for hours and hours. And they were completely relaxed and well fed, and I was able to move around and work freely and photograph them and. It was just, uh, you know, that was my my last long session with the wolves, and that was my most favorite recent sunset. Well, that's a perfect answer. Ronan, thanks so much for being on. I really appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate the time, and then, uh, yeah, letting me speak to your audience. Thanks. Thanks for listening, guys. If you like what you heard, hit subscribe and leave a quick review on iTunes. Suggest it to a friend who could use a little travel inspiration. If you have a travel question or suggestion on someone I should chat with, just hit me up on my social channels at Charles Thorpe and at Adventure Podcast. New episodes will be dropping every Friday, so keep checking in for the next. Until then, safe travels. Conversations were recorded at Smile Radio, located in Smile to Go at the Freehand Hotel. 